<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. $1,200. We're all supposed to be receiving $1,200 in our checking accounts. Mine hasn't arrived. I don't know if yours has. But the Washington Post is reporting many Americans woke up expecting to find payment of $1,200, but it wasn't there or it was the wrong amount. And parents of children complained they didn't get their $500. And here's where it gets real interesting. Several million people who filed their taxes via HR Block, TurboTax, and other popular services were unable to get their payments because the IRS didn't have the direct deposit information on file. That's because these companies insert themselves in the middle between you and the IRS so that they can give you advances on your taxes. And then when your tax refund comes, it goes right to those companies. Now, in other countries, I don't know if you saw Michael Moore's movie, uh, Where to Invade Next, but it's, it's fascinating. And in that movie, he talks about how other countries do taxes. And he describes a couple of countries where they basically calculate your taxes for you, send you a, a, a postcard or a letter that says, okay, here's how much, you, how much was collected, here's how much you owe, here's a check for the overpayment, or here's how much you owe us. In other words, there's no H&R block, right? The government does it and says, you know, if you disagree, feel free to let us know why. But here, we did your taxes for you. And it's very simple. It's very straightforward. And there's several governments that Michael Moore laid out. And these are all European governments, particularly Northern European governments. But there's several governments where not only do they do your taxes for you, but they say, okay, your taxes this year were $3,422. And of that, $938 of that went to fund the military. $722 of it went to fund schools. $312 of it went to fund the functions of government. Whatever it may be, right? In other words, you literally see where your money went. We could easily do this in the United States. And we have been able to easily do this in the United States since the 60s or the 70s, since the era of of widespread computerization in government offices. Why haven't we? Because H&R Block and TurboTax and Quicken and all these companies, they're making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in profits off doing your taxes, something that should be completely unnecessary. And because we've got this cumbersome, profit-based system in our tax, in the world of taxes, just like we do in healthcare, United Healthcare just announced, hey, first quarter profits of $5 billion, or revenues, excuse me, $5 billion. We're doing fine, United Healthcare says. Well, of course. They've got us all by their short hairs. I mean, this is the profit opportunity in healthcare, the profit opportunity in taxes literally don't even exist in many countries around the world because the government does your taxes for you and simply says, here, here's what you owe, and here's how we calculated it. You can double-check our math. And the government says, oh, you had a hospital bill? We'll pay it. No out-of-pocket, no pharmaceuticals, no co-pays. That's the norm all around the world, including in Canada. I don't know about how they do taxes in Canada, but that's how they do health care. And I find it just amazing. I mean, the, what, what this coronavirus is revealing are these cracks, these fractures. Another one is Fox News. 
You'll recall the Fox RGBH lawsuit. You can Google Fox RGBH lawsuit. It's recombinant bovine growth hormone is what RGBH stands for. And this was a case back 15 years ago or thereabouts when two reporters for a Fox station down in Florida, this is a Fox-owned television station, Steve, and I'm not remembering their last name or his wife's name, but, but anyhow, the two of them, this is a married couple that were both reporters for the station. And they were given the assignment of reporting on the question of whether, this was when they were first starting to shoot up cows with these hormones in a big way, and it was real controversial because Japan and some European countries were refusing to accept meat from the United States because we use this GMO, this uh, you know, lab-manufactured hormone, this recombinant bovine growth hormone, that they were concerned might cause cancer, stimulate the growth of cancers and things like that as it made its way into the human food supply. And so these two reporters went out and did some really good, serious investigative reporting. And what they found was that, yeah, this uh, RGBH might be a problem. And so they put together the report and Monsanto got wind that this was happening and they leaned on Fox or on this Fox station and said, no, don't let them report that. And this husband and wife reporting team had to change their story something like 20 or 30 times. And, you know, over and over and over again, actually, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to Google this thing while I'm talking. RGBH lawsuit. There we go. And, yeah, it's foxgbhsuit.com. And yeah, that's right, Jane Aker and Steve. But anyhow, the website is right there, foxgbhsuit.com. So Fox ultimately fired these two people because they would not rewrite their story to say, everything's good, Monsanto's wonderful, just be happy. They fired them. So they sued for wrongful termination. And in a state court before a jury of their peers, the jury unanimously awarded them a couple hundred thousand dollars in wrongful termination. And Fox appealed this. And the appeals court ruled against Steve and Jane. And the appeals court said, no, this is considered free speech. Fox can require its reporters to lie to people. That's legal. So that was 15 years ago. And that decision stands. Well, now... There's a group in Washington, in Washington State called the Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics, Washlight. And we had a representative of this group on our program last week when they first filed this lawsuit against Fox News. There's a different division of Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch's empire, but they filed this lawsuit against Fox News saying that they were intentionally accusing the network of, quote, deceptive coronavirus coverage and all that kind of stuff. Well, the network's lawyers have filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. And in this motion, they say, and I quote, this is from the Fox lawyers, quote, the First Amendment does not permit censoring this type of speech. In other words, saying there's nothing to worry about the coronavirus. The First Amendment does not permit censoring this type of speech based on the theory that it is false or outrageous nor does the law of the state of Washington. The lawsuit says that Fox News and Sean Hannity and Trish Reagan, quote, acted in bad faith to willfully and maliciously disseminate false information, denying and minimizing the danger posed by the spread of the novel coronavirus. That's from the lawsuit. And Fox's response, we can lie if we want. That's called free speech. And by the way, they're probably right. I think that probably the, you know, it's not going to be Wash Light that's going to end up having standing in this case. It's probably going to be the families of people who watched Fox News aggressively, who can find some evidence that this family member watched Fox News, like they bought products from the advertisers or something like that, bought, you know, Sean Hannity bobbleheads. And then those members died, and the families can sue for wrongful death. But this we'll see. is the Tom Hartman Program. Very, very interesting out there. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this.
Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind today? Afternoon, Tom. Not the reason for my calling, but given your last rant there, I'm personally in the middle of that. I'm in year 12 of a litigation against a giant corporation and won a unanimous jury verdict uh, back in May, and we're now under appeal again, 12 years in. So this Fox yeah. story, big and rich, is always going to litigate forever. But my reason for calling is Michigan protesters and the other pockets of them around the nation. If I'm to understand them correctly, this is a grievance over liberty. And the countervailing force is public safety. That's basically the gist of it, right? Yeah, it is. Eamon Bundy, for example, I reported on this about two weeks ago or maybe even three weeks ago. He's got this little compound in Idaho, maybe on the Oregon border, maybe it's here in Oregon, where he was saying the First Amendment protects your right to assemble. And it does. You know, the government shall not prevent people. Yeah, in a public health outbreak, such as a pandemic, there are other considerations. Anyway, my point is this. These people, we recognize them with their Confederate flags and, and so forth. But correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't this the same subcultural group of Americans who 20 years ago were screaming at us liberals when we were raising questions about civil liberties and privacy over porno scanners and body searches and and facial recognition and all this stuff that came in that the Islamophobes loved the violations of liberty there to weed out dangerous terrorists. This is now the same people. If you had a Venn diagram of those two subsets of people, what you have is the ultimate black and white case of hypocrisy here, where they're occupying both sides of the fence on a individual liberty versus public safety issue. And I don't think you have to be yourself an epidemiologist to be able to say that this fear and the consequence and the number of people affected is far, far greater now than was the one we were all afraid of 20 years ago after September 11th. So look Great. around. Great, we your only community. had 3,000 people die on 9/11. Right, and the number is going to keep tallying. But look around your community, your neighbors, friends, family, coworkers. When we're all back to work, recognize these people as the same people susceptible yeah. to a fear-driven, irrational, uh, snap behavior. And, you know, there'll be numbers in a few weeks, a few months. These folks who were out in the streets doing this, you know, they're going to be among the infected and dying, will they not? Yes, and you know, uh, sadly. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't wish death right. on anybody, but, but you're no, absolutely no. right, Eric. And Go ahead. Will the people close to them look at that and say, oh, you know what? Maybe we really we're taking this this notion too far. I mean, will they finally absorb the science, Tom? Will they? I think that's going to happen as this virus starts pushing its way into these more rural areas in these red states. I think that that's going to happen. There's going to be a come to Jesus moment. It's just the problem that they have in Michigan is that Gretchen Whitmer's lockdown order is actually stopping the spread of the virus, which is allowing this denialism to proliferate. Eric, thanks for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our selection today for the Tom Hartman Book Club is This Land, How Cowboys, Capitalism, and Corruption Are Ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. This is from Chapter 1. It's about halfway through the chapter. He's talking about Bernard DeVoto. DeVoto was the first major historian of the West who was also an environmentalist and an activist, the first chronicler of what Wallace Stenger called the West's curious desire to rape itself. DeVoto was a Westerner raised in Utah. He suffered in the provincialism and intolerance of Mormon country, went east to study and then teach at Harvard, settled in Cambridge, but never forgot the beauty of his native ground. Loving the land and history, said a magazine profile, but loathing the society. His histories, novels, criticism, his essays in Harper's Magazine, where for 20 years he wrote the oldest column in American journalism, Easy Chair, pointed to always west. His trilogy, published in the 1940s, The Year of Decision Across the Wide Missouri and the Course of Empire, garnered the Pulitzer, the Bancroft, and the National Book Award. 
widely celebrated. Devoto used his position to become his generation's most outspoken defender of the public lands. He called the West a plundered province, a resource colony for corporations and absentee landlords who practiced, quote, an economy of liquidation. He was broad in his assault on the liquidators. He went after the timbermen, the mining companies, the stockmen, the cattle barons, the oilmen and gasmen, the overgrazers, the deforesters, the denuders, the profiteers of gold rushes and grass rushes. He named the bankers and congressmen who abetted the plundering, the western hogs, he called them. They'd been busy for a century laying waste to the west. Long before the public domain was vested with any permanence legally in the hands of the American people, before there was a consideration of the land itself or any environmental ethic, the West had been torn up, beaten down, subjected to the greed and profligacy of the commodity users. Ironically, the users in their race to liquidate helped drive the creation of the public land system we know today as they proved the need for federal stewardship to stop their abuses. Massive timber frauds in the 19th century, the largest land fraud seen in the West, led directly to the establishment of the Forest Service in the 20th century, its purpose to stop deforestation. Out-of-control cattle numbers in the steppe, overgrazing that turned the fragile soil to dust, led directly to the federal grazing regulatory system that eventually became the BLM. When in 1946 the commodity users conspired to destroy the public land system, the system in which devotos saw the only hope for Western conservation and preservation, he stood to oppose them. Quote, he was the first conservationist in nearly half a century, except for Franklin D. Roosevelt, to command a national audience, said Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., a student of his at Harvard. No one did more in the post-war years to rouse public opinion against the spoilers than Devoto. Devoto and Schlesinger had seen firsthand what unregulated industry could wreak in the arid lands when they drove cross-country together in the spring of 1940 and entered western Kansas past the 100th meridian. These were the last years of the Dust Bowl before FDR's soil conservation programs and the return rains of the 40s could heal the land. Wrote Devoto, a cemetery was 10 inches deep in sand. Half the headstones had toppled into it and been partly covered. Sagging shacks that had been farmhouses had their windows blown out and dust was two or four or six feet deep against their western walls and a foot deep against the far wall. A repulsive dust as fine as sifted flour. Now, six years after that trip with Schlesinger, Devoto was confronted with the West's cattle barons, the liquidators of the grass, who were hell-bent on reducing the region to the same mess of dust. In 1946, the Joint Committee on Public Lands of the American National Livestock Association met in Salt Lake City to discuss the goal of undermining what few regulations had been placed on livestock operators under the newly formed Bureau of Land Management. The stock growers' ambition went further than mere deregulation. They hatched a plan, with the help of friends in Congress, to begin moving all federal land, the BLM and Forest Service domain, as well as the national parks, into the control of the states. The plan evolved through 1946, 47, 48, with legislation making its way on Capitol Hill. Devoto covered the story for Harper's. He cautioned that the stock growers were attempting, quote, one of the biggest land grabs in American history. The public lands are first to be transferred to the states on the wholly justified assumption that there should be a state government not wholly compliant to the desires of stock growers. It could be pressured into compliance, he wrote in Harper's. Nothing in history suggests the, the states are adequate to protect their own resources or even want to or suggests that cattlemen and sheepmen are capable of regulating themselves even for their own benefit still less the public's, end quote. The long-term plan, he said, was to get rid of the public lands altogether, to place the common possession of the American people into private hands. The livestock industry went on the attack, mounted a PR campaign to discredit Devoto, and pressured Harper's to cease its support. Unmoved, the magazine continued for three years to publish his relentless exposés of the intrigues in the state houses and in the Western Caucus. Devoto had convinced the editors, when no other publication that mattered in the East cared, that the threat of such land transfer was an existential one. This Land by Christopher Ketchum. Welcome back.
There's a few other things that I wanted to rant with you and at you about. <laughs> Donald Trump. Oh, this is this is so funny. This is this is from Andy Borowitz. He publishes it over at the New Yorker. Years ago, he gave us permission to use his stuff anytime we want. I don't know if that still applies, but I'll just share a little bit of it. Borowitz, of course, is a satirist. So this is satire. But let me just share it with you. Donald J. Trump vehemently defended his decision to have his name printed on millions of IRS checks being issued to the American people, telling reporters on Wednesday, I want my name synonymous with the coronavirus. Lashing out at critics of his decision, Trump said, I've been working on this pandemic day in, day out. I deserve total credit for it. He said that by putting his name on the checks, whenever the American people hear about the coronavirus, the first thing they'll think about is me. (laughs) Fauci says, I don't think it's really necessary because people already associate the coronavirus with him. And uh, Barack Obama says he was surprised by Trump's statement, remarking, I had no idea that he knew what the word synonymous meant. (laughs) Okay, Angela Merkel, she's slowly reopening Germany. Katrin Benhold, writing about this in the New York Times today, a month ago when the number of deaths stood at 90 Germany-wide, Merkel's government imposed strict social distancing rules that banned groups of more than two people and shut down the economy. By Wednesday, German infections stand at 136,000. They've got 3,400 deaths, which is extremely low compared to Spain and Italy that are both in the neighborhood of 20,000. They only have 3,000 deaths. Their hospitals are not overwhelmed. Their ICUs are still available. Germany's strategy of early and widespread testing its large number of ICU beds helps explain the country's relatively low mortality rate. But the trust in Merkel's leadership is the reason why people are complying. And people trust her because she's just laying it out. She's telling them the truth. As in the previous stages of the pandemic, writes Katrine Benhold for the New York Times, Ms. Merkel consulted widely before she made her announcement Wednesday. She studied the recommendations from a panel of 26 top academics, in a range of fields including behavioral psychology and ethics, and then hammered out an agreement with the governors of Germany's 16 states. She's working collaboratively. And I can tell you, some of those people are her political enemies. But they are working together for what's best for Germany. Meanwhile, Representative Katie Porter, who is just like one of our best members of Congress, she is seriously PO'd. The private equity firms, these vulture capitalists, are saying, and you know, one of the big things that we talked about a week or so ago was this hospital firing this doctor who spoke out. Well, it turns out the doctor didn't actually work for the hospital. He worked for one of these private equity, one of these companies owned by private equity. And she is writing a letter to the companies that own the companies. These are hedge funds. There are these private equity firms like KKR. She's saying, why are you guys asking for money? And why are you controlling the nation's emergency room doctors? And why are you cutting their pay? This piece in Daily Kos by Hunter, the president of the American College of Emergency Physicians is William Jackwiss. And he's also the senior vice president of Envision Healthcare. This is why you get these surprise billing things, because these ER docs are not part of any networks. They're owned by private equity. So you show up in the hospital, you're going to get billed no matter what your insurance pays for. And they are saying that they need $3.6 billion. The two guys who own this private equity company are worth $11 billion. $11 billion. Steve Schwartzman and Henry Kravitz. And they're going to the government saying, we need $3 billion to bail us out because, you know, we've got these doctors and all. As Hunter says, the alternative is for capitalism to suffer the consequences of capitalism. These two guys can bail out their own company and they can still buy as many yachts as they want. And or we could take Envision, this company that, you know, employs tens of thousands of ER doctors across the country and other physicians. We could just nationalize the company. Katie Porter is demanding answers. She's like, what the hell is going on here? She wrote this long letter to these people. You can find it over on her Twitter feed, Rep. Katie Porter. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. 
and it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's, or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Coming up on this week's Science Revolution is Zach Corrigan with Food and Water Watch. Could another zoonotic pandemic be coming? Thomas Lindsay with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights is here on the rights of nature and how they may have kept Pennsylvania from industry harm. And Friends of the Earth, Lucas Ross is dropping by on the big oil bailout and how fracking could be next. Plus, Arthur West with the Washington League for Increased Transparency and Ethics is suing Fox so-called news for endangering Americans by calling the coronavirus a hoax. Can he win? The Science Revolution is available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Picking up your phone calls, David in Claremont, Florida. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Long-time listener, first-time caller. About a week and a half ago, I tested positive for the coronavirus. Luckily, it's starting to get better. I'm still waiting for my stimulus, so I thought maybe calling my congressman would help. It was Danny Webster. <laughs> the gentleman at the congressman's office told me, well, maybe I should go to a bank and apply for a loan. I told them I have coronavirus. Why would I want to go get other people sick? Are they right. really that far from reality? Yes, they are. Yeah, they are. David, tell us about your experience with coronavirus. I wouldn't wish this on anything. It's like your lungs aren't on fire. You can't catch your breath ever. I had asthma when I was little, and it feels like the world's worst asthma attack. Hmm. And you're on the backside of it now? You're recovering? I'm a lot better than I was, yeah. I got furloughed from my job in the meantime as well, so the stimulus is important yeah. to me, just paying bills. Yeah. I'm not going to go to yeah, a bank two of the- and get people sick. 
Yeah, yeah, I get it, and, and good on you. You know, this is a very scary disease, and it's got a lot of people uh, experiencing a lot of pain. I'm so sorry to hear that it got you, David, but uh, I'm glad to hear that you're feeling better. Thank you for the call. You know, the pain and suffering that is sweeping across this country, a woman called, she's got a catering business, and it's dead. I mean, there's going to be a lot of small businesses, uh, maybe even the majority of small businesses in America, that are going to get wiped out by this. And if we don't come up with some way to put these companies back together, what's going to happen is two things. Number one, you're going to have waves of bankruptcies and horrible human tragedy. And the small businesses that are able to hang on or that are left are going to be super vulnerable to a big business coming in, you know, like a big restaurant chain, for example, coming into a town and, you know, there's 40, 50 restaurants that are just teetering on the edge. And, you know, these are businesses that, just a, you know, six months ago would have sold for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars if the restaurant owner was going to sell their business. And now they're on the edge of bankruptcy or they're even underwater. And so now, you know, some big restaurant chain comes in and says, oh, well, we'll buy your business for $10,000. You know, we'll buy your business. We'll just assume your debts. Just give it to us. And so I believe that, you know, lacking really aggressive federal and state intervention, we're going to see another wave of consolidations happening this fall and happening next spring as we start to slowly come out of this thing. That's assuming that a virus or a cure has been developed, but that's what I'm seeing. Jordan in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Hey, Jordan, what's on your mind today? Yeah. Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. I'm wondering if one of the unintended consequences that may arise is that employers might start discriminating against employees who have not yet contracted the virus and say you are ineligible to work. Yes, I fully expect that. Or a new category of employee is going to be created and and you know, you're going to see help wanted ads that say, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is legal or not. If it is legal, they'll just say it. If it's not legal, they'll figure out a way to do it in code. But basically, help wanted ads that say, you know, wanted cooks, restaurant workers, uh, servers, etc., who have already had coronavirus. Correct. And lacking a vaccine, there's actually a certain kind of logic to that. And then, you know, some of them, I mean, you know, Papa John's Pizza right now is advertising on television that from the time the pizza comes out of the oven till it's delivered to your door, it's never touched by human hands. And they have contact-free right. delivery. And I'm expecting to see more. That's the first company I've seen that is advertising like that. I'm expecting to see more and more of that happening, that kind of advertising and, you know, using that we are virus-free or we are as virus-free as you can possibly get is going to start becoming a marketing tool. And this is going to provoke some interesting debates on discrimination and, and things like that. It's also, this is part of the, and some of them are fairly explicit about this. I mean, this conversation has been had on Fox News on a number of occasions or in right-wing radio as well, that if all these young conservative Republicans go out there and expose themselves like they're doing in Michigan, you know, with these rallies and things, if they can expose themselves, they get sick, they make it through onto the other side. Only about half of people get, you know, bad symptoms. And of the half who get bad symptoms, only a very small percentage of them die if they're under 30. So, you know, it's like going through the portal. But when you come out on the other side, you're now Superman, right? they're going to be well positioned to be a, a labor force, whereas the people who are over 40, over 50 in particular, who are at much, much higher risk of death, are continuing to shelter in place. They're going to be locked out of the labor pool. We're going to see all kinds of realignments here, Jordan, and I'm not sure it's going to be anything other than ugly. Jordan, thanks a lot for the call. Anna in Minneapolis. Hey, Anna, what's up? Hi, Tom. Well, I just wanted to let you know that apparently Minnesota needs to be liberated. They're planning oh, a rally. They're planning oh, from, a rally at the from government. I think it's the governor's mansion or the Capitol uh-huh. to fight this, the shelter-in-place orders. Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing oh, the new like Tea Min- Party forming here. Well, and I don't feel like Minnesota has really been that bad. I mean, like, the home stores are still open, groceries, liquor stores. They can still go on the lake now that spring is here. It's not like it's been a complete shutout. So I don't right. know. I don't know. But it's very frustrating, especially for those of us who are taking this seriously. And I have a daughter 
who has underlying health conditions. And I just seen Dr. Oz running his big trap saying that only two to three percent of the kids will die, so we should open the schools back up. Right. And yeah, I know. You know, he would be singing a different tune if it was his daughter. Yeah. I mean, this, exactly. These are the same people who were out there 10 years ago saying, you know, we don't need Obamacare. It's an abomination. We don't need to cover all Americans. All Americans don't need health insurance. All Americans don't want health insurance. So what if we've got 37 million unemplo- you know, uninsured people in the United States? No big deal. You know, I'm not one of them. Therefore, I mean, that's kind of their mentality. A lot of them are younger people. And there's and they're basically saying, you know, I'm not in a high risk group. And so, you know, bring it on. And it's kind of a, a weird form of machismo combined with false bravado, combined with, you know, being pushed by right wing billionaires who want their businesses to reopen and they want the business world to get back to normal. This goes back to my rant that Donald Trump has been pursuing all along the herd immunity strategy. And herd immunity means you got to let the virus burn through the country. And I think this is why even in South Dakota, where it's, where it's taken down cities or a city, that, you know, the Republican governor is still saying, no, I'm not going to do anything. It's all good. You know, they just figure the more people can get sick, the faster it will, you know, it may be a stress on our hospitals, but who cares about hospital workers anyway? And, you know, when it's over, everything will be good and we'll be the last ones standing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's bizarre, it's inhumane, it's dangerous, but it, if you're looking at it purely in terms of dollars and cents and, and, and those numbers, and particularly if you can figure out a way to not provide health care to people, just let them die at home, it actually makes a certain amount of bizarre logic, you know, at least to a sociopath. Anna, thank you for the call, and thanks for the heads up. Jeez. I'm telling you, these things are going to pop up all over the country because they get publicity. And that's what these guys want. They want publicity. They, they want to be in the eye of the storm. They want to be the focus of attention. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We'll be back with more of your calls in just a moment. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program. The place where despair is not an option. In our special video over at TomHartman.com. It's uh, the story of what the rich libertarian billionaires who have been funding the Libertarian Party and the Republican Party for, well, in a big way since the election of Ronald Reagan for the last 40 years, and have succeeded by owning politicians and owning the Republican Party in preventing us from even getting a public option, much less a national health care system. What they are doing, what their answer is, what their response is to the question, what do we do when things really go bad, when the economy's falling apart, when epidemic disease is sweeping the country, what do we do? Well, it turns out they've got an answer. It's just not an answer for all the rest of us. They're getting in their private jets and heading off to their private little bunkers. Seriously, that's what they're up to. So I, I lay out the whole story complete with details and name names over at TomHartman.com. Check it out. Thanks so much. Bob in Westminster, Colorado. Hey, Bob, what's up? How you doing, Tom? Good. Uh, we had a locally a post was on TV last night, and he made a few comments, which didn't go national, but he was saying that their tracking shows that 78% of the people complying, that, but actually if we could get 90%, we'd peak a lot sooner. And the review for our stand down is like April 26th at this point. And there was one other final thing that came up as far as kickback in Colorado. One of our notable gun rights senators called his thing uh, too Gestapo-like, which he responded to, and he really got emotional about it because he is Jewish. Is this he that you're talking about, uh, Governor Jared Paulus? Yeah, I think he's Jewish, and uh, uh-huh. I won't give you the senator's name, but he's a conservative gun rights gun advocate uh, senator down in Douglas County, I think, Douglas County area of Colorado, mm-hmm. which is extremely uh, right-wing. And he basically, basically it's like, uh, I think if he was, if Polis was offended because he can, he likened the initiative to stand down like a Nazi movement or something, or made it like right. it was a Gestapo. 
this is their shtick, you know, it's like, you know, the tyranny is here, you know, we've been warning you about this for decades, that someday big government is going to come, and they're going to take your gun, and they're going to lock you in your house, and they're going to, they're going to do terrible things, <laughs> and they're here. Bob, thank you for that, thanks for the heads up. Alan in Bellevue, Washington, hey, Alan, what's on your mind? Oh, uh, well, I wanted to talk about the uh, economic impact, uh, particularly the Fed. I'm, as a layperson, I'm having a hard time understanding why the Fed has to print out a trillion dollars a day to give to the banks, the financial system. From my standpoint as a layperson, these banks have loaned money to hedge funds and speculators and people and, you know, people with leveraged options and things like that. Main Street didn't cause this crash, so why are the billionaires getting bailed out by the Fed? Because they own the politicians. <laughs> I mean, it's literally just that? that simple, Alan. I mean, you know, Jimmy Carter on this program in 2015 said America is no longer a democracy, it's an oligarchy. And he's right. I mean, the, the study that Gillens and Page did that found that the desires of average working people are not translated into legislation, that looked at the period from 1982 or 83 up until 2004, as I recall, or 2003. It was that period of time. And that was the period of time where they said, we are no longer a democracy. America is no longer a democracy. This is a study done by Princeton University and Northwestern University. And so, you know, when you've got an oligarchic government, when you've got a government that has been captured by billionaires, you shouldn't be surprised that the billionaires get whatever the hell they want. Well, you know what? Let's let's sick Kate, sick Katie Porter on the Fed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and Elizabeth Warren. Thank you. Yeah, I'm with oh, you, yeah. Alan. Thank oh, yeah, you for the absolutely. call. Yeah. You bet. Yeah, we've got some we've got some really uh, kick-ass tough women out here, and and uh, you know Katie Porter and Elizabeth Warren, and and uh, you know they need to be going after these people. We all need to be going after them. This is this is part of. I mean, either America is going to reinvent itself in a more egalitarian way, or it's going to reinvent itself as a fascist nation. These protests, in quote, that you're seeing, these are the beginning of the fascism. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club, our book today is How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property by Ben G. Price, uh, with a blurb on the back from some guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, One Right to Rule Them All, The Dark Side of Property. Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America, nations that emulate its governing principles, are governed by a dictatorship of property. Is that plutocracy? Sure. But it goes deeper than that. The U.S. Constitution, as it was written and later interpreted by the Supreme Court, hijacked democratic rights that American revolutionaries thought they had won. The Federalists developed a whole system of law that serves the interests of wealth. Elements of that system include the following. State constitutions untethered from their revolutionary moorings. International trade agreements that supersede local, state, and federal laws. Regulations administered by an unrepresentative bureaucracy. Political parties that gerrymander legislative districts so that they can choose their voters rather than allowing voters to choose their representatives. Corporate property that the Supreme Court has declared to be persons with Bill of Rights protections. Federal and state statutes that privatize public governance and prohibit democratic limits on the uses of private fortunes. And local governments declared to be property of the state and made unavailable to communities for municipal lawmaking. We live deep within an undemocratic matrix of law that masquerades as a democratic republic while it legalizes an aristocracy of wealth. The U.S. Constitution was written by men who came from a uniformly privileged class. Charles Beard argued this point in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Beard analyzed the economic interests of those who met in secret to overturn the Articles of Confederation and concluded that the Federalists were motivated by economic self-interest to establish a form of government that would protect their wealth against an excess of democracy, as Alexander Hamilton put it. The Federalists who replaced the Articles with the U.S. Constitution were not fully aligned with the liberating agenda of commoners who risked their lives to throw off the hierarchical chains of Great Britain. They were wealthy men educated in British law with opinions that harmonized with aristocratic sentiments. The authors of the U.S. Constitution are often called the Founding Fathers. Popular history lumps the Federalist counter-revolutionaries in with the likes of Thomas Paine, who with this firebrand writings against monarchy, nobility, and special privilege for the few, inspired the people to demand independence. 
Popular culture counts the Federalists as American revolutionaries no less fervent for liberty than the men whose ideas of leveling the social class system inspired American farmers and day laborers to pick up their muskets and take on the redcoats. This conflation of the Federalist counter-revolutionaries with those whose spirit of 76 is reflected in the Declaration of Independence and absent from the U.S. Constitution is a troubling reminder that popular history too often preserves false memories. What's the evidence that the Federalists intended a constitution that weaponizes law to protect the accumulation of property and raise wealth and out of reach of public governance? Well, to begin with, their own words were recorded in Philadelphia in 1787 by James Madison and Robert Yates. Damningly, that record had, was held secret until every delegate to the clandestine conclave had died and the constitution they wrote had been the law of the land for two generations. We have that evidence and it tells the tale I'll share in chapter two. We also have the product of their cleverness to consider. The Federalists established a quasi-monarchical judiciary. Politically appointed judges wielded the power to veto any legislation that departs from the Federalists' original intent to protect wealthy accumulation from democratic oversight. We have the arguments of the anti-Federalists who called out the would-be American aristocrats for betraying the revolution. If not for them, we would not have the first ten amendments to the Federalist document, the Bill of Rights, which many identify as the soul of the U.S. Constitution. More immediate evidence that the original intent of the U.S. Constitution was to immunize possession of unearned property from public regulation can be found in the antisocial way the document is interpreted by the courts and how it operates on society today. Here's my argument in a nutshell. We are faced with social, political, and environmental problems that resist resolution because law empowers a wealthy minority to govern based on priorities often at odds with the general welfare. The Constitution and its interpretation by the courts amounts to an arsenal of weaponized law able to deliver special privileges to a propertied class. Certain legal mechanisms let those seeking to profit at the public expense block policies that compete with their interests. These legal doctrines operate by a two-step process. First, they remove democratic rights from the public sphere and deposit them in concentrated accumulations of property. The oddity of attaching legal rights to property itself rather than to people roared into public consciousness with the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling that affirmed corporate property's personhood and free speech rights. Although the ruling shocked the conscience of average Americans, it was not the first time the court had vested civil rights within inert property. Nor were corporations the first type of property to be given legal rights. The second step is for property imbued with rights to deliver those rights as an extra layer of legal privilege to the property owner. When civil and human rights are deposited in property, that property is placed beyond the authority of the people to govern how it is used by its owner. This nullifies the majority's ability to decide directly or through elected representatives what public policy will be. As a result, we aren't allowed to resolve issues of immediate concern to every community. Even when we understand what needs to be done, we're often blocked. And then he goes through the whole list. Benji Price writes, How Wealth Rules the World. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. 
Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Bite. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting. But Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You know, back when I was a kid and, and, you know, used to go to church, my mom took me to the Methodist church, and then later I, I was in the Church of God, and then the Coptics, and I went through a period of my life where I was very churchy. And, and one of the things that I constantly heard was this riff based on both the words of Jesus and Paul, that principalities and powers are at war. That there is a war between good and evil, between the forces of darkness and light, you know, however it's characterized or whatever metaphor is used, both in the Bible and in the sermons, that there's this battle going on. And to this day, frankly, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. And it seems to me that we're looking at a similar battle right now in the United States of America that is fighting. There's a fight going on to define what this country is going to be like for the next four generations, for the next 80-year cycle. And on the one side, you've got the right-wing billionaires who want uh, what Franklin Roosevelt and Henry Wallace, his vice president, called fascism, the merger of corporate and state interests, the takeover of government, I would call it oligarchy, the takeover of government by the very, very rich. They have that right now. They've largely had it since the 1980s, and they want to continue it. And they want to double down on all the fascistic pieces of it, including you know, virtually unlimited executive power, as long as the executive is a right-wing Republican. And they're looking at an uprising in America against progressive values. And we're seeing the the little green shoots, the springtime shoots of that uprising popping up where the DeVos family is funding this right-wing group in Michigan that's funding or or encouraging these right-wing protests in Michigan. Don't tread on me. We had a caller earlier saying it's happening in Kentucky. We had another caller uh, just a few minutes ago in Minnesota saying that it's happening in Minnesota. There's going to be a rally today in front of the governor's mansion or something like that, or maybe it's this weekend. But it's coming. And I've been saying for some time that I think that this, this virus, this, this public health crisis, is giving the lie to neoliberalism. It's letting Americans see the, how insanely corrupt and poisonous, essentially, the neoliberal philosophy that Ronald Reagan brought us in 1981 when he changed both the economic and political systems of this country away from the New Deal, away from Keynesian economics, away from government of, by, and for the people to an oligarchic form of government up by and for the billionaires. Reagan did that in 81, and we're still living in that era. It's a 40-year experiment. We now have the proof. It doesn't work. 
And all across the country, you're even seeing Republicans, you know, Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, the governor of Maryland, Governor Hogan, these are Republicans are saying, no, no, we've, we've got to pull together on this. We've got to, we need to do these things together. Versus the eight holdout right-wing governors who are saying, no, nothing to see here. Don't worry. We're going to pursue herd immunity in our states. And, you know, we're going to come out of this great. But, but beyond that, they're also promoting basically neo-fascism. And I think this is going to be the next big political battle. And I think that that's going to be, I think that this is going to be the foundational battle of November 2020 and going forward. I think that this is still going to be on the plate for 2022 and 2024 as the billionaires try to bring back their whole Reaganistic thing of, you know, no government is the enemy of the people. They've been promoting for some time now the idea that a free press is the enemy of the people. You should only listen to press to a media that is owned by billionaire oligarchs like Rupert Murdoch. You should only read the Wall Street Journal and New York Post. You should only listen to Fox News. This is the message that they're putting out. I mean, this is, this is poison. I expect this battle to really pick up. Rita in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Rita, what's up? Hi, I just want to vent because my daughter and my granddaughter are nurses. My granddaughter is working on a floor that's nothing but these patients that are dying that can't see their families. And then you've got Sean Hannity saying, this is okay, let's go back. Rush Limbaugh, let's go go back to work. They're putting my family's life at risk and other families' life at risk. This is insanity, and it's got to stop. We need a change so bad. I'm telling you, I can't wait till this, this orange man is out of office. He's just a horrible, horrible man, and everyone that backs him, which I even have family members that do. I just, I think it's terrible. And thanks for letting me vent. I'm sorry. It just. Yeah, no, Rita, it's a good one. I mean, I totally empathize. Two of my kids are frontline healthcare workers. And the third is the chief public health official for a county just up the road from here. And Louise and I are very worried about them. You must be scared to death about your granddaughter in particular. Yeah, I'm scared to death. But I'm telling you, the normal people, the people that are kind and bleeding heart liberal like I am, they're sending food to my granddaughter and my daughter, and they're doing so all they can for the nurses, which is wonderful because these nurses not only have to take care of these patients, but they have to console them because they don't have their loved ones with them. It's just, uh, this is a terrible, terrible thing. And this Dr. Sean Hannity is the biggest joke around. So, thank you, Tom. That's very unfortunate. (laughs) Rita, thank you for the call. And and I'm I'm glad we could provide you with an opportunity to vent. And hopefully, you know, a few million people got the message. Amazing. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Some of the uh, leading headlines around the country, the Washington Post, Schumer and Democratic Senators Patty Murray, Debbie Stabenow, Dick Durbin argued that the Trump administration needs to expand testing to give Americans the confidence to go back to work and resume their normal lives. Yes, testing is the key to the whole thing. Axios, Senate Democratic leadership announced Wednesday a plan authored by Senator Patty Murray. She's from Washington State that calls for $30 billion in emergency funds to bolster national coronavirus testing and contact tracing. Uh, the Seattle Times uh, saying the same thing. Uh, Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, a lot of these stories now pushing this. The New York Times, uh, this is some of the, this roundup is a remarkable. Chuck Schumer's office just pushed this out. The New York Times testing falls woefully short as Trump seeks to end stay-at-home orders. See, he can't have it both ways. He can't say, hey, guys, I'd like you to go back out there and visit my hotels and my, and my golf courses, which, of course, is the source of his anguish. He can't say, you know, come to my hotel and golf course and at the same time say, but, you know, we're not going to let you know if you have the coronavirus or if you had the coronavirus or if my employees have had the coronavirus. Or, it's just you can't have it both ways. 
This is a remarkable story published over in Huffington Post. Dateline Singapore. At around 4 p.m., this woman teaches in a yoga studio or goes to a yoga studio. She says, around 4 p.m. on March 26th, a Thursday, I got a text message from the yoga studio where I moonlight as a part-time instructor. A student had tested positive for coronavirus. Within the hour, a ministry representative conducting contact tracing for coronavirus's cases called my cell phone. After I told her about some shortness of breath that I experienced in the prior two days, an ambulance was immediately dispatched to my home and I was whisked to the National Center for Infectious Diseases to be tested for COVID-19. By 8.30 p.m., my chest had been x-rayed, nose swabs to test for the coronavirus administered, and a brief exam by an ER doc completed. Now, she also had asthma, and when the test results came back, they were negative. They basically said, yeah, she's got asthma. But she writes, my experience is typical of someone potentially exposed to the coronavirus in Singapore. In the early days of the pandemic, Singapore had among the world's highest number of COVID-19 cases. But three months into the outbreak here, she writes, Singapore's numbers remain relatively low. Singapore with a population of 6 million, which is about the same as the 7 million in Washington state, has only 3,700 people infected and only 10 deaths. Washington State, on the other hand, has 10,700 infected and 567 deaths. New York, 200,000 cases and 11,000 deaths. Now, these numbers are from her article. They may be out of date now. But she says the BBC reported in March that 40% of positive coronavirus cases in Singapore were identified because of contact tracing efforts. That phone call that she got. And now we have Mayor Breed in San Francisco. And Governor Baker in, uh, Mayor Breed is a Democrat, Governor Baker is a Republican in Massachusetts, both instituting contact tracing programs for San Francisco, the city of San Francisco and the state of Massachusetts, respectively. She writes, if you test positive for the virus here in Singapore, you're immediately hospitalized and isolated. You're then kept sequestered at either a hospital or a dedicated quarantine facility until multiple tests for COVID-19 all come up negative. And all this on the government's dime doesn't cost you a penny. We're getting all these reports now, people who show up at ERs to get tested, and whether they test negative or positive, they go home and they get a $10,000, $15,000, $20,000 bill in the mail. Prime Minister uh, Lee of Singapore went on live television. Well, actually, this was on Fareed Zakaria's show. He said, we're transparent. If there's bad news, we tell you. If there are things which need to be done, we also tell you. And people all over the world are praising Lee for you know, basically getting ahead of this. You know, the guy from Singapore. And South Korea is doing this. Germany is doing this. And now the New York Times reporting that 90% of the deaths in the United States would not have happened if Donald Trump had shut the country down two weeks before New York and California did, or New York and the Bay Area. Just in those two weeks, we would, instead of having... 30,000 dead people, we'd have 3,000 dead people. Instead of having 600,000 infected people, we'd have 60,000 infected people. Meanwhile, Javad Zarif, the foreign minister of Iran, posted a tweet. I saw this tweet and I hit the translate button. I was like, whoa. This is his tweet. I'm very happy to talk to my old friend Wang Yi, the Chinese state counselor and foreign minister again. We exchange views on issues of common interest, such as fighting the new crown pneumonia epidemic, deepening the comprehensive strategic partnership between the two countries and the peace process in Afghanistan. I thank China for providing Iran with anti-epidemic materials and sending medical experts condemning the continued illegal sanctions by the United States that severely hindered Iran's efforts to fight the epidemic. Donald Trump has pushed Iran into China's arms. You'll recall Barack Obama had actually worked out essentially a peace, a truce with Iran. And they submitted to a testing regime. They were moving down the road to opening their society, to acknowledging Israel, to, you know, to peace. Barack Obama worked this out and Donald Trump blew the whole damn thing up and has now thrown the Iranians into the arms of the Chinese. So much for American leadership in the world, right? Well, from a president who doesn't believe in leadership and doesn't believe in America. He believes in fascism, basically. He thinks the fat cats should run everything and the big corporations should run the government. And that's why many of his high offices within the administration are staffed by lobbyists. 
guy who runs the EPA, former coal industry lobbyist. The guy who runs the Interior Department, former oil industry lobbyist. I mean, he's got lobbyists all over the place. It's crony capitalism at its very worst. And now on top of that, he's just destroyed. Three years of the Trump administration have destroyed America's reputation around the world. It's going to take us a decade or more to get that back. If we can, China's stepping into the vacuum that we're leaving behind. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 